0: Skip the waiting room. TireRack.com now offers convenient mobile
1: tire installation in select areas. Simply shop TireRack.com for your next set of tires and at checkout choose Tire Rack Mobile Tire Installation. An expertly trained technician will arrive with your tires and install them on site, at home, at the office, wherever you are. You'll spend less time waiting and more time doing the things you enjoy. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be
2: listener supported wnyc studios
3: hey lulu here whether we are romping through science music politics technology or feelings we seek to leave you seeing the world anew radio lab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get podcasts It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. It's been almost six months since COVID-19 came to dominate our lives. While many countries have curbed their total number of cases, today, the U.S. has recorded more than four and a half million of them and more than 160,000 deaths. And one of the easiest and simplest solutions to curbing the spread of the disease, mask wearing, has instead become the latest front in the culture wars. Leadership has been woefully inadequate, starting at the very top. The White House has sent mixed messages all along about the scope and severity of the crisis.
2: Within a couple of days, it's gonna be down to close to zero. One day, it's like a miracle, it will disappear. It will go away, you know it it is going away. It's gonna go away, this is gonna go away. It's gonna go, it's gonna leave. It's It's gonna be gone, it's gonna be eradicated.
3: And of course, the president himself has spread conspiracy theories about the science and the solutions to stopping the pandemic.
2: She was on air along with many other doctors. They were big fans of hydroxychloroquine, and I thought she was very impressive.
3: About the only thing we can agree on is that a vaccine may be the only way the U.S. can get close to returning to normal. Meanwhile, with the election looming, the president has been desperate to show that the vaccine is just around the corner.
2: We will have a very successful vaccine, therapeutic and Cure, we're making tremendous progress. I deal with these credible scientists, doctors, very, very closely. I have great respect for their minds.
3: But even a successful vaccine won't be a panacea for all the problems unearthed by the virus. Just convincing Americans to get a vaccine will be its own challenge. Trust in public health officials has been undermined by the president, And, of course, a majority of Americans think the president has mishandled this crisis in the first place. And then there are the challenges of manufacturing the drugs at scale and distributing them. To better understand where we are in the vaccine development process and what we could expect when one becomes available, I sat down with Carolyn Johnson, a science reporter at The Washington Post, and Umair Irfan, a staff writer at Vox.
0: Well, it looks like there are at least 200 vaccine candidates being investigated around the world in various stages of development. There are about two dozen undergoing clinical testing in various stages. Six are actually beginning phase three trials. And in China, the Chinese military granted approval to at least one vaccine candidate. When we say phase
3: three, isn't that like the phase before we actually go into production of a vaccine?
0: It's the phase right before the FDA approves it for mm-hmm. uh, mass manufacture. So yes, this is where you're talking about testing anywhere between 20,000 to 50,000 people. You're tracking them over time and basically seeing if there are any side effects and also any complications with other under underlying health issues, things like you know diabetes, heart disease, or other pre-existing conditions, issues that would influence spreading this vaccine across a huge segment of the population.
3: This has been developed in record time. How concerned should we be that this happened as quickly as it did in terms of the safety and
0: efficacy of this? Well, the scientists that I've spoken to have said that the unprecedented speed comes from the unprecedented level of international collaboration on this. The researchers I've pointed out have said that this is actually sort of an ironclad checkpoint, that they are not going to compromise on safety at all, which is why the Human trials are going to be the uh, main limiting factor in terms of how fast we get it. Basically, we need to validate that this uh, vaccine, whichever candidate comes to fruition, is safe for a huge segment of the population. And that ultimately is going to govern when a vaccine actually gets manufactured.
3: So, Carolyn, let's get to that next part, which is the manufacturing of this and then distributing it the administration has said they'd like to have 300 million vaccines available. The Operation Warp Speed is saying that they're able to do this because they are not just developing it, but they are also currently manufacturing it. In other words, they're not waiting for it to be completed before they start the manufacturing. And if that's the wrong one, then they'll go back and manufacture another one. Do you, as you see where we are, in manufacturing this drug at the level we need to manufacture it? Do you think the country and the infrastructure that's been organized by the administration is up for this?
4: They are taking these steps to manufacture before they know whether the vaccine works. The administration spent about eight billion dollars on various candidates uh, to allow them to make kind of the financial investment that's pretty risky to make a vaccine at scale that you don't know yet if it works, because if it doesn't work, you have to just throw it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something we are definitely doing and doing in advance so that the day that a vaccine is shown proven effective and safe, we aren't starting from scratch there because that could just introduce a huge delay in access. So it makes a lot of sense. And the companies are really the ones working on this. And many of them say they'll have tens of million doses you know, before the end of the year. It does seem like we will have some vaccine on the shelf. Whether we know whether it works is, is another question. But the supply demands are, are something they are very focused on trying to get ahead of.
3: And then there's the distribution piece of this. And it seems like there are a couple of questions. The first is just getting all of those doses out, but also deciding the order in which people get them. Do you have any sense of how that would work? Who's prioritized, for example, in getting the first of these vaccines?
4: Well, the CDC has a committee that's devoted to this topic, and they've been meeting and discussing who would be prioritized. They're going to pick people who are at high risk of, of being exposed to this and having severe disease, so frontline healthcare workers is one category Uh, there's been discussion of different racial and ethnic groups that have been devastated by this pandemic and and how to prioritize them potentially I mean older Americans might be prioritized I mean some of it depends on the characteristics of the vaccine that works so Some vaccines don't work as well in some populations, particularly older people. And if that's the case, you know, they probably will take that into account when they decide how to prioritize people. But that's going to be a process everyone's watching. There's going to be a lot of, you know, public communication that needs to occur because there are going to be people who want the vaccine, but who aren't really high risk, and they're going to have to wait. And they may, and you know, there may be people who are more hesitant to take it, but need kind of the outreach to get the vaccine. So at the beginning, there's not going to be enough of it for the country or the world. So, you know, these issues may not be the first problems necessarily in terms of, you know, we're, they're going to have to tell people there's not enough and that's going to be their first challenge. But they also need to make sure the right people get it first because those first vaccinations are more powerful if they go to the people at greatest risk. Do
3: we have any sense of who those would be? I mean, I'm thinking of frontline workers and healthcare, And as you pointed out, older people or vulnerable populations.
4: Yeah. So healthcare workers are definitely high on the list. They are meeting about this. There's actually several different sort of bodies meeting about it both the CDC has been meeting about it in a process that's kind of public so people can can be sure that you know it's not happening behind closed doors exactly and then there's also a separate group being convened uh, the national Academies, um, of medicine that is looking at this issue, too. So they are still debating. They haven't finalized the prioritization. Carolyn, let's go to something that you
3: have written about, and it's this idea that just because we have a vaccine doesn't mean that this moment that we're in and this pandemic that we're in is over, that it really is only the beginning. So help give us a reality check on what it would mean to get a vaccine into the american public
4: everyone's looking to the vaccine to bring us out of this and that's that is the solution that will hopefully end this pandemic but i think there's potentially not a full understanding of how much has to do after we do reach the scientific milestone which will be a huge important uplifting day like a mental shift in how we can think about our relationship to the coronavirus but it doesn't mean the next day we take off our masks and we all can hug our friends and family again because depending on how effective the vaccine is, a certain por- portion of the population are really going to need to get it in order to uh, to be safe. And that will take time. Uh, it sort of depends if we have a w- really, really slam dunk vaccine, it would be less of the population. But in any case, we're talking about a rollout that would take months to, I mean, years potentially for the whole world to be safe. So it'll be bit by bit that people feel safer because of the vaccine, but also because of other things that we can do to help, you know, contain this pandemic. There are just other things that people already have accessible to them that can really help bring down disease transmission. We've seen it in other countries where some countries, I mean, they still have outbreaks occasionally, which they are able to contain, but they're able to return to some level of of much more normalcy than we have here because they've used sort of like more old fashioned tools. It's most likely not going to change our lives that day, that month. I mean, we all have to get the vaccine. Most of these vaccines are two dose vaccines at this point. So you need a booster shot like about a month later. There's just a lot of Logistics that are going to come into play. But it doesn't mean to be pessimistic. It just means that to be more realistic, to not be disappointed if the day after, the month after the vaccine, you still are wearing a mask.
3: There are things that we could be doing, other countries are already doing to mitigate the spread, but we can't even get people to wear masks in this country. So the idea that we will still be able to remain vigilant on that seems to me, a very big challenge once people say there's a vaccine there. Oh, it's okay,
4: I don't need to wear this mask anymore, I got a vaccine. That's what people are are worried about, both that people could have a kind of a sense of invincibility from having gotten one, not realizing that many vaccines are only partially effective. The flu vaccine is a really valuable vaccine. But it doesn't prevent you from getting the flu 100% of the time. It's, it sort of depends on the season. And if the first vaccines for the coronavirus are similar, uh, that would still be a huge public health you know, accomplishment. But it wouldn't mean that no one got sick anymore. We'd still need treatments to save the lives of people we love from the worst ravages of this disease. So... Some epidemiologists said, you know, we're not going to land in Oz the day that the vaccine is is shown effective. It's going to be a process.
3: So how do we get people to get a vaccine in this moment in time? Who can be the credible
0: messenger here? You know, the president recently said that, you know, he expects a vaccine by November 3rd just after the election or just before the election. So that kind of rhetoric can sort of undermine the integrity Mm -hmm. of the process. People may think that it's being rightly or wrongly being rushed. And that's what scientists are working really hard to try to counter to basically build up this credibility that even though they're working at a record pace at astonishing speed, they are still checking all the boxes, they have the data to back it up, that they are validating all the results and that what they're distributing is safe and beneficial. But that requires a lot of you know transparency, that requires a lot of public education. And that's kind of been a bit of a hurdle right now because one, you have things moving so quickly that uh, they're not necessarily uh, being so forthright with the information that they have. We've seen some of these vaccine manufacturers, for instance, announce some of their latest findings through press releases rather than through you know, peer-reviewed papers or even through preliminary non-peer-reviewed papers. And so it's been harder to scrutinize those results. Um, and so that's something that could potentially undermine it. And the way you build that credibility is, of course, through transparency and through having good, solid public messaging that through nonpartisan means potentially to, to illustrate the benefits of getting this vaccine and how it can help us return to normal. But it is a process. And this uh, public acceptance aspect of it is not something that should be underplayed. This is something that's really important to start tackling right now. And,
3: Carolyn, even without the challenging sort of partisan moment and the politics around this, we know there's also a very significant portion of the population that is very wary of taking, of getting vaccines or getting their children vaccinated in the first place. And I'm not just speaking about anti vaxxers, but others who have questions about whether these things are safe or this particular vaccine will be safe. So is there any way to sort of address that underlying health issue? Like how much is the underlying concerns about vaccines overall and their efficacy problematic in terms of getting enough people this vaccine to give us some sort of herd immunity?
4: That's definitely going to be one of the many issues. I mean, in the first days, there won't be enough. So people probably aren't going to focus on that problem as the first hurdle we have to surmount, but vaccine hesitancy, both from people who are actively kind of anti-vaccine, and then also just from many people, you know, particularly in communities that have been hardest hit by this pandemic, like the Black and Latinx communities, have very understandable distrust of the medical system. And that is going to be a huge issue because those people in many ways have the most, you know, if the vaccine is effective, it would be a tragedy if they don't get access to it. But we are just facing a moment of unprecedented kind of distrust of governmental authority. And so a lot of work really needs to be done to build bridges and, and engage those communities to understand what their concerns are, to address them, to talk about them in a really straightforward way. So that, that's one of the huge challenges. And it's playing out right now already because they are really working to make sure that the big 30,000-person trials that test whether the vaccines work have a lot of these communities represented because they don't want a bunch of people who are able to work from home kind of like affluent people just volunteering. They want a really good cross-section of everyone who's going to need to benefit from this vaccine so that they know if it works.
3: Right. Well, Carolyn and Umair, thank you so much for taking this time and speaking with me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Making, testing, and distributing hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine is an enormous task that will require serious coordination of the public and private sectors. Dr. Jesse Goodman is a professor at Georgetown University and the former chief scientist at the Food and Drug Administration. I asked him about his experience responding to the H1N1 pandemic in 2009 and the logistics of getting a vaccine to those who need it most.
1: Even at the most, simple biological level, can we make a vaccine that works? We don't know that yet, you know, so there's promising early data in humans and animals that shows, you know, a antibody response where we humans make antibodies that can neutralize the virus, but we don't know how that correlates to protection. So that very first principle of will it work? We Mm -hmm. think it will, but we don't know yet and we won't know until those large clinical trials are done that show is this effective in humans? Do the people who get the vaccine have less infection than the people who didn't? What's really exciting here is several of these vaccines are very new technologies, which is what enabled these first candidates out of the gate that are now in large trials to get going quickly.
3: Just reading back on past vaccine development, especially developments at You know, government and industry wanted to get very quickly to people, whether it was polio, whether it was the swine flu in the 1970s. It seems like they're, they're one of the big kinks in the whole process was the manufacturing piece. And there were some really significant mistakes made at the manufacturing portion of this that went on to really injure people who got the vaccine. So h- how much concern do you have that given how quickly this is is being developed that and and how challenging it will be to make a lot of doses of this that we could also be increasing the pro- the possibility of people getting doses that might not be very good for them.
1: The capability and experience of the regulatory agency, you know, in this case, FDA is at a much more advanced, um, sophisticated level than it was, let's say, you know, back in the days of um, when polio vaccines were first mm-hmm. developed. And the state of the science, including of manufacturing, is at a much higher level. So I think some of the risks of, you know, out and out missteps and misadventures are lower and the and the understanding of how to prevent them is much higher yet you know as you point out in you know honestly in anything this is why having a you know independent and capable regulatory agency is so critically important and this is also why you can speed the production of data But you need to get the data, you know, so we need the data from those large phase three trials. We need FDA to be able to oversee and evaluate manufacturing processes.
3: One final thing in terms of just distributing a vaccine, how do we ensure that it gets to who it needs to get to, especially when we know that there is mistrust, the government in many communities including communities of color, which stems from decades of unethical treatment
1: and experimentation. Inclusion of those communities in clinical trials has not been what it should be historically. So, you know, I understand from hearing from NIH and some of the sponsors that efforts are being made, you know, to enroll, you know, typical communities that are underrepresented in these vaccine clinical trials. I think that will be very important to explain to people that the data includes them. So that's one point. In terms of fairness and priority for distribution, again, that's an area where I think you know there's a lot of ways to do it. There are different committees looking at this. Again, what we did in 2009, different virus, the priorities may be different, but on the initial short supply, focus on those who either were at the most risk because of their exposure, like healthcare and essential workers, and then those who were at the most risk for severe outcomes, which currently would be, you know, people who are elderly and people with underlying medical conditions. If doses are limited, there needs to, again, be transparency about how allocation decisions are made so that people understand that. There's also a huge mechanical and logistic issue here to potentially immunize most of or the entire population, so hundreds of millions, and potentially give two doses. That's a huge logistics issue. And you know we need a clear national immunization plan for this vaccine or series of vaccines, and we need to have that whole infrastructure in place ahead of time. So I'm really concerned that, you know, the day to do that is not when the vaccine's available. It's now. And uh, while there does seem to be good coordination on the vaccine development part, we haven't yet seen what the national immunization plan for this vaccine is going to look like. I would also mention that, you know, it's been mentioned the possibility of having the military involved. Yeah. And, you know, I think that needs some deep thought the 2009 vaccine was pretty successfully distributed through a combination of normal channels uh, through healthcare, uh, through physicians and public health. And, you know, sort of both healthcare related and then private sector distribution through, you know, pharmacies, other people can provide immunization, and some public immunization sites like schools, etc. I think Right now, public health is incredibly stressed and may not be able to take that on. But, you know, I think the preference would be to, again, use more typical distribution channels supplemented by, you know, mass immunization sites if that was needed. You know, I worry that as wonderful as our military is, you know, how, again, in this context of rapid development, uh, the current politicization of everything, if not done very, very carefully, you know that could create concerns. I mean, I think this is not something where we'd want to see something like what's happened with testing happen. You know, where mm-hmm. every single place does it differently, where one hasn't thought of, you know, do you have the syringes <laughs> to administer this vaccine? You know, all of those things are not challenging, and I'm not saying it's simple for the government to do. But they are things that um, even if ultimately managed at the state levels, the ensuring the logistic planning and capability and supplies, um, you know, really will require federal coordination.
3: Thank you, Dr. Goodman. I
1: really appreciate it. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Take care.
0: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
4: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
0: Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Communities of color have been disproportionately hurt by the coronavirus and the economic downturn the pandemic has caused. But a long history of abuse and racism at the hands of medical professionals has made communities of color skeptical of public health resources from the government. This has the potential to further complicate treatment and prevention of COVID-19 within these communities. Gary Puckrin is the president and chief executive officer of the National Minority Quality Forum, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve the quality and safety of healthcare for people of color.
2: The American healthcare system, at least the system that we currently live in, was built during a period when America accepted inequalities. Uh, Inequalities in employment, education, and inequalities in healthcare. And we still live in that legacy system. And we speak of the Disproportionate outcomes for minorities as disparities. But they're really programmed outcomes uh, that have been going on inside American healthcare for generations.
3: And so this is everything from literally not having enough people of color in clinical trials to, of course, horror stories of experiments done on brown and black people without their
2: consent. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so, so the way to think about it is when a person walks into the American healthcare system, the expectation is that the system is going to lower their risk. Lower their risk for hospitalization, lower their risk for disability, lower their risk for having to go to emergency room, lower their risk for dying, and in the process, improve the quality of their life. What's going on now is, we are elevating the risk of some patients when they come into care. We elevate that risk because they don't have health insurance. We elevate that risk because they can't uh, financially able. And within that, there are also structured inequalities based on a person's race or gender or religion or whatever somebody thinks about. And so that's what we're dealing with here. And what we have to do is to get the American healthcare system to a place where it understands that its fundamental purpose is to lower risk. It can't be in the risk elevation business, mm-hmm. do no harm. And that's what minority populations face.
3: So let's think about coronavirus. And there are so many folks who think that if a vaccine is available, this is going to be able to maybe not overnight, but get our lives back to normal. Um, It is going to require, though, that folks get vaccinated. How do you think people of color are going to respond to the government putting out a vaccine and asking everyone to come in and get a vaccination?
2: Minority populations, for historic reasons, have had reason to be concerned uh, when they come into the healthcare system. And now it's just elevated, uh, particularly as what we're doing with vaccines right now is uh, we're not using the traditional method of developing vaccines. We have now gone to this accelerated set of protocols that no one is talking to the American public about and explaining exactly what that means um, and why they should have confidence in the product that come out of it. And the minority population has a set of elevated set of reasons uh, to be distrustful, particularly if when those vaccines come out and the decision is made that essential health workers, however defined by some rule or law or policy or whatever, have to be vaccinated in order to continue to work. That will just really be a trigger.
3: So what will you be saying Um, when this vaccine comes out? What's your advice going to be to communities of color?
2: We're all about the science. So the first question we would ask is, so what did the trial data say Uh, were minorities enrolled in the trials in sufficient numbers um, so that we have, can draw scientific conclusions about efficacy and safety. Uh, and if, if that is satisfied, um, then we would um, of course take the position uh, that folks ought to, uh, ought to get vaccinated, but it's gotta be by the science. Mm. Uh, and right now, I, I don't understand, and no one is talking to us about how these new protocols uh, work, uh, the size of the patient population, how diverse are they, what are the, the endpoints uh, that they're looking for. I mean, so there, there are whole sets of, of those kinds of questions that right. uh, have to be answered.
3: Who do you want to be telling you about how these protocols work? Who would you trust to get these
2: answers from right now? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? So historically, one would say FDA. Mm -hmm. But FDA is, its voice is confusing right now. And so it it needs to reestablish its voice so that everyone can be comfortable that we're all speaking the same language, which is science. There is a scientific method that has nothing to do with politics, it's just science. Who
3: do you think would be a credible, trusted messenger to go into brown and black communities if indeed you personally felt like the vaccine was effective and, and passed the rigors of science?
2: Certainly those minority serving providers uh, have to be able to talk to their, uh, their patients about taking the vaccine because the patients are going to ask them and, and they've mm-hmm. got to have the confidence to say that if you inject yourself with this thing, it's going to be safe. And they're going to look to the numbers. Um, they're going to look to the science before they can confidently say that to them. And then the patient advocacy uh, folks, um, they'll be asked as well. So there's a whole education process that has to happen here, and it needs to happen simultaneously with the discovery process because everybody needs to understand how this process is working and that at the end of the day, it'll be safe.
3: Gary Puckrin is president and chief executive officer of the National Minority Quality Forum. All right, now it's your turn. When a COVID-19 vaccine becomes available, will you get it and why or why not? Hi, this is Micah from Glasgow, Kentucky. I probably will not take the vaccine if it's available either this year or in the beginning of next year. I feel like it's being rushed. I know it has to be rushed for health reasons, but I'm a little concerned that it's being rushed more for political reasons. And for that reason, I probably am not sure that I would trust that it was safe enough to take without more studies.
2: This is James from Bellevue.
1: And when a vaccine that is approved by the CDC is made available,
2: I absolutely will take it as soon as possible because I believe in science and trust in the CDC. Hi, my name's Jennifer. I'm calling from Orlando,
3: Florida. I would absolutely get a vaccine for COVID-19 because I simply want to be able to see and embrace my loved ones in the future. My name is Sharon and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. Absolutely no, will not be getting the the vaccine. Um, I believe this is contrived and it's
0: more about dollars than it is health. Shadley. Hi, my name is Sabina Spicer. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. I will be the first in line for the vaccine. I will be there with my toddler and my husband. We will camp out if we have to to get that vaccine. We will camp out like there's a new Star Wars movie coming out and we will be there uh, ready and waiting for it. My name is Mike. I'm from San Diego, California. I'll definitely get a vaccine, especially if it's proven to be successful. Not only will it provide me peace of mind for myself and allow me to be a little bit normal, but it'll also help in aiding the community and my fellow Americans around now. This is John in
1: Denver, and I will get a vaccine uh, in a heartbeat, provided it's scientifically sound. I'm uh, 63 years old and, and scared by the Rona.
3: As always, we appreciate hearing from you. Eight seven seven eight. my take It's the number to call. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Dina Syedamed is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer, and our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.